The people see, respondent. V. Stan Shu Wei Li, appellant. Raymond W. Belair, for appellant. Vincent Ravelli's, for respondent. Fahi, J. Here, the appellate division rejected defendant's challenges to his conviction of two counts of manslaughter in the second degree. We affirm the appellate division order, insofar as appealed from I. Defendant, then a physician board certified in anesthesiology and pain management, was accused of running a pill mill at his Queen's Pain Management Clinic. During a lengthy jury trial, the people presented evidence that defendant prescribed medically unnecessary high doses of opioids, alprazolam, and other controlled substances as a first resort. Defendant generally did not verify the source of the pain complained of by the patient for which the patient sought the controlled substances, order diagnostic tests for objective confirmation of the existence of the pain, or consider other pain management treatment options. He conducted little to no physical examination. Defendant often prescribed heavy doses of whatever medication his patients requested to alleviate their complaints of pain. He required payment in cash and charged extra for, among other things, higher doses of opioids. Several of defendant's former patients testified at trial that they were opioid addicts. They testified that they used the drugs defendant prescribed them to get high, rather than for legitimate pain management. Indeed, defendant was advised by other medical practitioners and patients' family members that several of his patients were addicted to opioids and at risk of dying from opioid abuse. Two of defendant's patients, Joseph Haig, and Nicholas Rappold died of overdoses caused by a combination of oxycodone and alprazolam on December 29, 2009 and September 14, 2010, respectively, shortly after filling prescriptions for such drugs issued by defendant. Pills from those prescriptions were found in their possession when their bodies were discovered. Defendant was charged with two counts of manslaughter in the second degree see Penal Law Section 125.15 for the deaths of Haig and Rappold, along with multiple other crimes related to Haig, Rappold, and a number of other patients. Defendant was ultimately convicted of two counts of manslaughter in the second degree, three counts of reckless endangerment in the first degree, three counts of reckless endangerment in the second degree, 170 counts of criminal sale of a prescription, one count of scheme to defraud in the first degree, two counts of grand larceny in the third degree, nine counts of falsifying business records in the first degree, and eight counts of offering a false instrument for filing in the first degree. The appellate division unanimously affirmed, and a judge of this court granted defendant leave to appeal. On this appeal, defendant challenges only his conviction of two counts of manslaughter in the second degree. He raises two contentions. First, defendant argues that, as a matter of law, he cannot be convicted of any homicide offense for providing controlled substances that result in an overdose death. Second, defendant asserts that his conviction on the manslaughter counts as not supported by legally sufficient evidence. 2. Defendant is incorrect that, as a matter of law, his conduct may not be prosecuted as a homicide offense. He relies heavily on People v. Pinckney, where the appellate division upheld the dismissal of counts of an indictment charging manslaughter in the second degree and criminally negligent homicide after the defendant sold heroin to the victim, who later died after injecting it. The appellate division reasoned that the legislature had already provided penalties in the penal law for the sale of dangerous drugs but had not amended the homicide provisions of the penal law to include homicide by the selling of dangerous drugs. This court affirmed the appellate division order in Pinckney without opinion. The precedential value of such a ruling is minimal. 
An affirmance without opinion constitutes approval of only the result reached and does not imply approval of everything contained in the opinion of the court below. We disagree with our dissenting colleague that our affirmance in Pinckney, which involved an indictment alleging a one-time sale of heroin and the instruments for injecting it, forecloses the prosecution of defendant for a homicide offense under the very different factual circumstances presented here see dissenting op at 7 Subsequent decisions from this court refute defendant's assertion that a person who provides dangerous drugs that result in death can never, under any circumstances, be prosecuted for homicide. Although in those cases, the defendants injected the victims with drugs, we did not state that this was a necessary element, as a matter of law, for homicide charges to be sustained. Rather, the defendant's injection of the drugs in those cases was one piece of evidence that supported the homicide charges and that distinguished those cases from Pinckney. Insofar as the appellate division reasoned in Pinckney that the defendant could not be charged with a homicide offense because the legislature had criminalized the sale of illegal drugs but had not amended Penal Law Article 125 to include a specific reference to death caused by the sale of drugs, that rationale was flawed. As a general rule, a statutory prohibition against a particular type of conduct will not be deemed to constitute the exclusive vehicle for prosecuting that conduct unless the legislature clearly intended such a result. There is no basis to conclude that the legislature intended to exclude from the ambit of the homicide statutes the prosecution of a defendant who, with the requisite mens rea, engages in conduct through the sale or provision of dangerous drugs that directly causes the death of a person. The fact that the legislature has separately criminalized the illegal sale of controlled substances does not require a different conclusion. We agree with the appellate division that all that was needed for the manslaughter charge to be sustained was for the people to satisfy its elements. 3. We further conclude that defendant's conviction of two counts of second-degree manslaughter is supported by legally sufficient evidence. A verdict is legally sufficient when, viewing the facts in a light most favorable to the people, there is a valid line of reasoning and permissible inferences from which a rational jury could have found the elements of the crime proved beyond a reasonable doubt. A sufficiency inquiry requires a court to marshal competent facts most favorable to the people and determine whether, as a matter of law, a jury could logically conclude that the people sustained its burden of proof. This deferential standard is employed because the court's role on legal sufficiency review is simply to determine whether enough evidence has been presented so that the resulting verdict was lawful. Importantly, in determining the legal sufficiency of the evidence for a criminal conviction we indulge all reasonable inferences in the people's favor, mindful that a jury faced with conflicting evidence may accept some and reject other items of evidence. It is the province of the jury to assess witness credibility and we therefore assume on a legal sufficiency review that the jury credited the people's witnesses. a. Recklessness. To convict defendant of second-degree manslaughter, the people were required to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that defendant recklessly caused the death of Haig and Rappold. A person acts recklessly with respect to a result or to a circumstance described by a statute defining an offense when that person is aware of and consciously disregards a substantial and unjustifiable risk that such result will occur or that such circumstance exists. The risk must be of such nature and degree that disregard thereof constitutes a gross deviation from the standard of conduct that a reasonable person would observe in the situation. 
A conviction for reckless manslaughter requires that there be a substantial and unjustifiable risk that death will occur, that the defendant engage in some blameworthy conduct contributing to that risk, and that the defendant's conduct amount to a gross deviation from how a reasonable person would act. The conduct must be the kind of seriously blameworthy carelessness whose seriousness would be apparent to anyone who shares the community's general sense of right and wrong. The people's considerable evidence with respect to defendants prescribing practices on a broader scale, which included testimony from several patients and their family members, was relevant as context to assess his men's area on the manslaughter charges with respect to Haig and Rappold. The people presented evidence that patients were not required to make appointments at defendants' clinic and were required to pay in cash. The clinic was open only on weekends, yet defendant wrote over 21,000 prescriptions for controlled substances between 2008 and 2011, most of those for a substance containing oxycodone or alprazolam Xanax. From January 2008 to January 2011, defendant increased his prescribing of controlled substances by 683%. On a single day in January 2011, for example, defendant saw 94 patients at his clinic. Defendant generally charged $100 per office visit, and he increased the charge to $150 if a patient returned early for more pills, had a friend or family member pick up the prescription, was obtaining prescriptions from other doctors, or wanted a higher daily dose of opioids. Patients testified that he generally prescribed whatever they requested, so long as they had the requisite cash payment. Physical examinations were either cursory or non-existent. Defendant usually did not order diagnostic tests, and if he did, he did not change his prescribing practices if a patient failed to comply with tests that he did order. The people's expert, Dr. Garibo, testified that defendant made no attempt to consider non-opioid pain management treatment for his patients, despite his training in other pain management options and the addictive nature of the drugs he was prescribing. Defendant disregarded warning signs that his patients were abusing their medication and were addicted to opioids, such as early visits, obtaining prescriptions from other doctors, deterioration in physical appearance, and, in some cases, direct warnings from family members and hospitals that defendant's patients had overdosed. Defendant did not change his prescribing practices until law enforcement began investigating him in 2011. Defendant altered medical records in response to an investigation request from the New York State Health Department's Office of Professional Medical Conduct. According to the people's witnesses, there was no basis for defendant's prescription of Xanax to a number of patients, including Haig and Rappold, since that drug had no legitimate pain-relieving function. The people's witnesses also testified about the synergistic respiratory depression effect of opioids and Xanax when taken together. Those witnesses explained that oxycodone has a respiratory depression effect that, if taken in large enough doses, will cause a patient to stop breathing entirely. Xanax, also a depressant, exacerbated that effect when taken together with oxycodone, such that smaller doses of oxycodone could cause respiratory failure. Dr. Garibo testified that Xanax is known to be highly addictive in combination with opioids, that addicts sometimes requested the medications together in order to enhance their narcotic highs, and that the combination of opioids and Xanax greatly increased the risk of a fatal overdose. Defendant was highly trained in pain management and the interaction and potential addictiveness of these drugs. Yet he frequently prescribed oxycodone and Xanax together without documentation as to why that combination of prescriptions was medically necessary for a particular patient. 
According to Dr. Garibo, defendants' prescriptions of high doses of opioids and Xanax were not attempts to treat legitimate pain based on reasoned medical judgment but rather were designed to create and feed a cycle of craving and addiction. With respect to one of defendants' prescriptions written for a different patient, Dr. Garibo testified that it was an overdose waiting to happen. Unlike the evidence with respect to some of defendants' surviving patients, the people did not present evidence that defendant was directly informed that the deceased patients, Hagen Rappold, were addicts or had previously overdosed on medications he prescribed. Nevertheless, viewing the evidence in the light most favorable to the people, as we must, and giving the people the benefit of all reasonable inferences, we conclude that a rational jury could have found that defendant was aware of and consciously disregarded a substantial and unjustifiable risk that his prescription practices would result in the deaths of Haig and Rappold. Dr. Garibo testified that defendant prescribed opioids to Haig on the first visit. There was no diagnostic workup, no attempt to determine whether non-opioid treatments could be effective, and no verification of the information Haig gave him about receiving high doses of opioids from other doctors. Although Haig gave defendant an MRI from 2005 showing a central L5-1 herniation, Dr. Garibo testified that this was a general finding that was not necessarily diagnostic. Defendant ordered another MRI for Haig but did not change his prescribing practices after Haig failed to obtain one. Instead, defendant continued to prescribe high doses of short-acting opioids, which Dr. Garibo testified would create a cycle of craving and withdrawal. When Haig complained of increased pain, defendant added a prescription for Percocet oxycodone and acetaminophen, without determining the reason for the increased pain. Defendant also prescribed Xanax, an anti-anxiety medication, to Haig without any indication that Haig suffered from anxiety and without any other documented medical basis. Furthermore, Haig returned early for his medications three times before he overdosed in December 2009, which Dr. Garibo testified should have alerted defendant that Haig had an addiction and was unlikely to take his medications as prescribed. According to Dr. Garibo, defendant created a prescription regimen to enhance an addict's high. On December 26, 2009, three days before he was discovered dead from an overdose, defendant prescribed Haig oxycodone, Percocet, and Xanax, among other medications. Dr. Garibo testified that this specific prescription defendant issued to Haig on December 26, 2009 created a very high risk that covered the whole range of morbidity and mortality, including overdosing due to misusing the medication and dying from respiratory death. In addition, after the medical examiner notified defendant of Haig's death and requested a copy of defendant's patient file, defendant made several alterations to Haig's chart to make it appear as if he had taken a more complete patient medical history. Rappold first saw defendant in July 2009, complaining of pain due to a fall. Defendant did not consider any non-opioid treatments for Rappold, who was then 20 years old, before prescribing a high dose of opioids to him on that first visit. Dr. Garibo testified that defendant conducted only a cursory physical examination, ordered no diagnostic testing, and did not diagnose the source of Rappold's pain. When Rappold returned to defendant over a year later, complaining of pain from another fall, defendant again failed to order diagnostic tests to objectively assess the complaint of pain and conducted little to no physical examination. Instead, defendant prescribed oxycodone and Xanax, without any indication that Rappold suffered from anxiety or needed Xanax for any other reason. Dr. Garibo testified that this high-dose prescription was designed to create a cycle of craving and not to treat legitimate pain. 
Rappold returned six days later, complaining that he had lost his prescription. Without checking to see whether Rappold had, in fact, filled that prescription, defendant prescribed Percocet and Xanax at a decreased dose, with no explanation as to the change in prescription. On September 11, 2010, three days before he died, Rappold told defendant that the Percocet and Xanax were not working, so defendant returned to the earlier prescription, which constituted a significant increase in Rappold's daily dose of oxycodone and Xanax. Dr. Garibo opined that this prescription created a high probability of overdose and death even if Rappold took it exactly as prescribed. Viewing that evidence in the light most favorable to the people, we conclude that the evidence was sufficient to support the jury's finding that defendant acted recklessly. A rational juror could have concluded, based on a valid line of reasoning and permissible inferences, that defendant was aware of and consciously disregarded a substantial and unjustifiable risk that Hagen Rappold would take more drugs than prescribed and would die by overdose, and, given defendant's position as their medical doctor, that defendant's conduct constituted a gross deviation from the standard of conduct that a reasonable person would observe in the situation. Penal Law Section 15.053 we disagree with our dissenting colleague that we have created a rule whereby a reckless doctor is criminally liable for all deaths of patients under his or her care, irrespective of whether the doctor knew or should have known that the deceased patient would abuse the prescription medicine and would die as a result of the abuse dissenting op at 3. Rather, we agree with the dissent that in order to uphold defendant's conviction of two counts of manslaughter, we must conclude that the people proved, by legally sufficient evidence, that defendant was aware of and consciously disregarded a substantial and unjustifiable risk that Haig and Rappold specifically would abuse their medications and die as a result. We simply disagree with the dissent that, viewing the evidence in the light most favorable to the people, that standard was not met here. As explained, while the record here may not contain evidence that defendant was directly told that Haig and Rappold were abusing their prescriptions or previously had come close to death by overdose, the record does contain evidence from which the jury could infer that defendant was aware of and consciously disregarded a substantial and unjustifiable risk that Haig and Rappold were abusing the prescription drugs that defendant provided and would die as a result. We further disagree with the dissent that defendants' prescribing practices as to other patients were irrelevant to his mens rea as it pertained to Haig and Rappold specifically. b. Causation. The people also were required to prove that defendants' conduct was a sufficiently direct cause of death, and that there was not an obscure or merely probable connection between defendants' conduct and the deaths. Defendants' conduct must set in motion the events which ultimately result in the victim's death. Nevertheless, defendant's actions need not be the sole cause of death, and defendant need not commit the final, fatal act to be culpable for causing death. As we recently summarized, a defendant's conduct constitutes a sufficiently direct cause of death when the people prove 1. that defendant's actions were an actual contributory cause of the death, in the sense that they forged a link in the chain of causes which actually brought about the death, and 2. that the fatal result was reasonably foreseeable. When Haig's body was discovered on December 29, 2009, the police also recovered prescription bottles of oxycodone and Percocet, prescribed by defendant on December 26, 2009, and filled on the same date, with dozens of pills missing from each bottle. Haig had Xanax among other drugs, in his system, which lowered the amount of oxycodone necessary to kill him. The people did not prove that the Xanax Haig ingested came from defendant. 
Nevertheless, the toxicologist testified that Haig's oxycodone levels were so high that it was clearly a fatal dose. Based on this evidence, a rational juror could conclude that defendant's reckless conduct was an actual contributory cause of Haig's death. The issue is closer with respect to Rappold, but we conclude that the evidence of causation was legally sufficient. The evidence showed that on the night before he died, Rappold took Xanax from a bottle prescribed by defendant two days before, and when that pill bottle was recovered from his car, more than half of the pills prescribed were gone. The people demonstrated that Rappold's death on September 14, 2010 was caused by acute intoxication due to the combined effects of alprazolam and oxycodone, meaning that although the substances were not found in his body at overwhelmingly high levels, the doses were high enough that, acting synergistically, they depressed his respiration and caused his death. Although the people failed to prove that the oxycodone that contributed to Rappold's death came from defendant, the evidence supported a conclusion that the Xanax Rappold ingested did. Thus, there is a valid line of reasoning and permissible inferences from which the jury could conclude that defendant's conduct was an actual contributory cause of Rappold's death, in the sense that it forged a link in the chain of causes which actually brought about the death. As noted, defendant's conduct need not be the sole cause of death. Defendant's contention that Haig's and Rappold's ingestion of the prescribed drugs in an amount greater than he prescribed was either an intervening cause or unforeseeable is without merit. Even an intervening, independent agency will not exonerate defendant unless the death is solely attributable to the secondary agency, and not at all induced by the primary one. With respect to foreseeability, the people must prove that the ultimate harm is something which should have been foreseen as being reasonably related to the acts of the accused. The fact that Haig and Rappold took the substances defendant prescribed for them in a greater dosage than prescribed is neither an intervening, independent agency nor unforeseeable. It is a direct and foreseeable result of defendant's reckless conduct. As explained, viewing the evidence in the light most favorable to the people, a rational juror could conclude that defendant was aware of and consciously disregarded a substantial and unjustifiable risk that Haig and Rappold would take the medications he prescribed at a higher dose than prescribed in order to attain a narcotic high rather than for legitimate pain management, and that they would die as a result. Finally, defendant argues that Dr. Garibo's testimony was not credible or reliable, and that his own expert testified that defendant's prescriptions were well within the therapeutic range of normal dosing, supported by sound medical judgment, and could not have caused death if taken as prescribed. Defendant points to evidence, including his own testimony, that there was no reason for him to know that Haig and Rappold were addicted to opioids, that they would misuse his prescriptions, or that they would die as a result. These arguments, however, pertain to the weight of the evidence presented to the jury on the manslaughter counts, an issue that we have no power to review. If the jury's verdict is supported by legally sufficient evidence, we have no power to overturn the conviction on weight grounds, regardless of our subjective assessment of the strength of the people's case. The appellate division rejected defendant's arguments pertaining to the weight of the evidence, and defendant does not contend that the appellate division failed to conduct a weight analysis or applied an incorrect standard. The limitations of our court's jurisdiction prevent us from second-guessing the appellate division's determination that defendant's conviction on the manslaughter counts was not contrary to the weight of the evidence. Accordingly, the order of the appellate division insofar as appealed from should be affirmed. People v. Stan Shu Wei Li Decision podcasts by the New York Prosecutors Training Institute are made possible by voice pods convert your text to voice at voicepods.com
read this decision at NIPT Law. www.nypti.org slash law.